Welcome back to another episode of The Founder, a show that features entrepreneurs and their early stories of ingenuity, struggle, and perseverance to get their companies off the ground. We do our best to capture the uncensored, uncovered look behind the curtain into what founders really face when getting started. I'm your host, Callaway. Our founder guest on today's episode got his start studying philosophy at Yale during his undergrad, realizing a love for systems and technology at an early age. After school, he spent some time at Redfin, a real estate tech startup, and had a versatile role supporting several functions across the business, including building and launching new products. He quickly realized that he had an affinity for building and knew that for his next project, he wanted to try his hand at making something from scratch without having a major corporation as a backstop. He spent some time exploring a few different problem spaces before settling on real estate technology, inspired by his time at Redfin. He became an entrepreneur in residence at Notation Capital to begin incubating his ideas, where he met his co-founder and started Branch. Today at Branch, this founder and his team have created a modern office furniture brand that sells directly to businesses and consumers. What started out as a rapidly growing B2B business for furnishing offices with anywhere from 25 to 250 people Branch and its founding teams hit a major roadblock when COVID struck in late February of 2020. A rich pipeline full of corporate clients went to essentially zero when businesses had to shut down their offices. Like any good entrepreneurs, the Branch founders never panicked and quickly pivoted to make high quality furniture for the home office. Today, they've supplied furniture to thousands of professionals at home and are poised to scale a hybrid model as we return to normalcy in 2021. As a special offer for our listeners, I teamed up with this founder to get you a discount off all branch products. Just use code Callaway or click the link in the show notes to take 10% off. This is an inspiring interview that shines a spotlight on an industry heavily impacted by the pandemic and a playbook on how sometimes you just have to pivot to survive. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Now introducing the co-founder of Branch, Sib Mahapatra. Let's get it. Sid, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really, really, really pumped to talk to you today about Branch and and learn more about your career up to this point and how you got here. So what I like to do on the show is before we dive into the company um, and, and kind of the founding story, I'd love to just get a snapshot of what it looks like today. So what's the mission and vision of the company and kind of how big is it today in terms of revenue or um, employees? Yeah, absolutely. So Branch sells office furniture. Uh, we started life primarily focused on selling office furniture to other businesses. So furnishing your companies between 25 and 250 people, say. Uh, obviously, since the, the COVID pandemic, we've taken uh, a, a few new approaches to, to our business and are now furnishing thousands of home offices around the country. So it's been a pretty fun adventure. We're two years in now, team of 15. Um, yeah, it's, 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 been a, it's been a pretty fun ride so far. Awesome. Yeah, I'm pumped to get into it and have a question later around kind of the product mix and the way that you know you started and then have had to shift via COVID. But before we get into that, I'd love to just dive into your background a little bit and just you know, in a nutshell, as fast or slow as you'd like, just take us through your life and and what kind of got you to start Branch. Sure. Yeah. So I I'll, I'll kind of give you the two minute summary and feel free to dig wherever seems interesting. But I uh, I started. Sort of my my uh, I guess academic undergrad life as a philosophy major 
and so, you know, not, not so, uh, I think aligned with, with this career in, in, uh, at, at first, uh, on its face, but, uh, I've always just been interested in, in kind of systems in, uh, in, uh, the way things, you know, generally, uh, function and, and so kind of got interested in tech towards the end of my time in, in undergrad, uh, ended up working at a company called Redfin, uh, out of graduation. It's a real estate technology company and just being almost like a chief of staff before that was uh, a thing or, or cool, uh, helping with everything from corporate development to partnerships to spinning up new businesses, uh, for Redfin. Uh, and it really sparked this bug in me just to build things. I think like many of us, um, there's, there's always kind of that first exposure, your first project that you ship, your first product that you manage and launch. And it was just addictive for me. I really loved it. Uh, and after a couple of years at Redfin, I decided I wanted to take what I had learned and, and do something on my own um, and uh, and see what it was like to build something from scratch without the support of a big company uh, to, to make it a little bit easier. Uh, and so in 2016, I left Redfin. Before starting Branch, I actually spent a year and a half kind of just traveling and consulting. And the idea here was A, to have a pretty meaningful personal experience, but B, also just to figure out a little bit more deeply what is it that I wanted to do? What kind of company did I want to build? What kind of leaders did I want to learn from and emulate? And then what problem ultimately did I want to solve? Obviously, the biggest factor, I think, in, in ideation. And so uh, fast forward to, to 2018, I was, I, I'd moved to New York. I used to live in Seattle. Uh, then I lived in San Francisco, moved to New York, uh, and uh, was an EIR at this uh, small venture fund called Notation Capital in Brooklyn. And uh, I was thinking about real estate tech ideas because I'd always been sort of fascinated by that space and Redfin cemented that interest and it was what I knew. And uh, and then I met my co-founder, which I'm sure we'll get into, and uh, and we started Branch in, in 2018. That's an awesome story. And I'd love to double click into the kind of EIR setup at the at the venture firm. And I'd love to learn, you know, when you went into that obviously real estate tech was the focus that you came in with and it makes sense, right? With the Redfin background, but how did you go about analyzing different markets and thinking about opportunities, right? Like what are the, for, for people that aren't as familiar with venture style thinking and, and, you know, have anchored more towards the pure founder, start from scratch, don't know anything, try to figure it out. What were some of the frameworks that you used to try to analyze different spaces and try to find where there were opportunities? Yeah, great, great question. Um, and I think there are sort of two broad approaches that people take, right, in, in startup ideation. And and by the way, like usually EIRs have a lot of work experience and they're super legit and have already started and sold something. So I was really lucky to have this role. It was at a smaller fund, but but one that would take a chance on me and believe in, believe in me. And so just kind of having that opportunity was pretty great. But But yeah, I think the two approaches that are typically taken, one is the bottoms up approach, the sort of Paul Graham uh, solve problems that you know um, and have real empathy with, uh, you know, particularly if you would be your own customer or user. And, and I think that is, if you can do it, it's one of the best ways to think about starting a company. You have that initial validation of the, of the uh, idea and you can feel really confident that it's a need that exists because you have it. Um, and you're not building for for no one. And then there's the other approach, which is the tops down approach, and and really you know similar to the framework that a venture capitalist would use to to decide if a business is is worth investing in. 
And I would say there are three main factors in that framework. One is the size of the market and, and how it's sort of trending. And ultimately, that determines how big you can get if you're successful. The second is the, um, the product itself. And, and I think the, the framework I have here is like, can this business sort of generate durable profits at scale? And so durable means like, is it something that people want that's hard to copy? Uh, profits mean, you know, what are the unit economics like? And, and will you actually make money? Sometimes you can get away with not making money, as we've seen with Uber and Lyft, but ideally you make money. And then the third factor is um, just, you know, again, making it big and, and being able to build something that you can actually replicate and, and scale. And then uh, the last thing that a VC would look at is just execution and, and team. And is this the right team for the product? And so what I tried to do is apply both those frameworks and start from things that I had some familiarity with. Um, you know, ideally in real estate, um, I, there were, there were a lot of spaces I had been exposed to through Redfin, through my own research and reading. And so definitely tried to keep my, my research on ideas confined to that broad market. Uh, and so that was a way of just focusing myself and making sure I had at least some empathy for, for the ideas. Uh, and then once I had the short list that was mostly drawn from my own experience, then vetting that list with the more VC style framework and thinking about the market and thinking about the unit economics, the competitive dynamics. And so, uh, and then, you know, ultimately, I mean, I guess to simplify all this, like ultimately, like you really want to be able to tell yourself a story about why, what you're building could be big and, and why you're the right person to, to build it. Um, because you know the problem and you know, potentially the solution better than others. Um, yeah. So long winded, but yeah, no, that's helpful. And, and I think I think it makes sense. I would love to kind of rewind the clock almost and put yourself back in that time frame where you had that short list of ideas. And I'd love for you to just run through, you know, what were some of those other, other ideas that you didn't pursue? What ultimately were the, you know, the holes that you poked that were too big to fill? And then and then when you were looking at the the white space or the gap in office space furniture commercially, what were the things that attracted you to it? Yeah. So one idea that I didn't end up doing anything with was, uh, this was a pretty like directly related to my time at Redfin, but it was, it was around basically making it easier for real estate agents to get paid. So when you're a real estate agent, you're not doing, you're doing like maybe five or 10 deals a year. And so your income is really spiky. And so there are sort of products out there where, uh, basically a, a lender will say, I will kind of give you 90 cents on the dollar for your commission, but you can get it paid uh, today. And so it's a business called factoring, um, which exists in all kinds of you know, B2B industries where you are getting paid later than you're offering a service. And so uh, I looked into real estate, you know, factoring for real estate agents and making that more transparent, solving those cash flow needs without kind of uh, screwing people over, which is what some of the players in this market did. Uh, and it was a pretty cool idea and people liked it, but this was definitely an idea where I applied that market size filter and just thought, you know, if I want to raise venture for this, it's just not quite big enough um, uh, of a market to play in. And you can obviously kind of expand your market, uh, move into adjacent things. But I talked to a few VCs and, and the team at Notation, and they said, this is a really cool idea, but it feels like more of a, a niche business. So that's one that was kind of... Uh, ultimately uh, uh, we ultimately didn't go with just because of the the market size uh and so yeah i mean it was july 2018 i had just kind of gone through three months of exploring this idea it was a little bummed that we decided to call it and then got introduced actually by an intern at the fund 
to my now co-founder, Greg. And credit where credit's due, Greg is definitely the one who had the idea for Branch. So he worked at Breather, which is a flexible office space company. And he was in charge of their East Coast real estate portfolio. And if you think about what flexible office space is as a product, there's two inputs. There's the space and there's the furniture. And so in the course of furnishing dozens of spaces around the US, he kind of had this insight around, okay, like there's not actually a great option here uh, that's, you know, and we'll get into this, but that's easy, that's affordable, that's flexible, uh, and that serves my needs as a customer. So maybe other people have this problem. So Greg and I met, he, he kind of pitched the broad idea, and then we together did some of this work on market size, on the competitive dynamics um, and on, on, you know, whether we felt like this was an idea we could really believe in. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'd love to, to dial into that. I think, you know, on the surface and you obviously know the space way, way better than anyone who's not in it. It seems like the office furniture space is pretty crowded, right? You've got a few big players, the steel cases, the Herman Millers, then you have a lot of, you know, fragmented smaller players that are popping up here and there. So when you were doing that competitive assessment, you know, obviously there's a way to spin, any brand and to try to fill a gap, but like, what were some of those tells immediately for you as someone with a venture background that were like, okay, this market's like too, it's too ripe for the disruption we're bringing to pass up. I would say like when we, when we thought about the market and you, you know it better than most, actually, that's exactly how we segmented it. So on the high end, there's definitely Herman Miller and Steelcase out there. And, uh, you know, probably a half a dozen other sort of century old brands that were founded well before the internet. And uh, they make beautiful products. Uh, everyone, I think the only kind of office furniture, the piece of office furniture that has ever established its own brand is probably the Aeron chair. And it's, it's a beautiful physical product. Uh, it also happens to be over $1,000. Uh, and, uh, and when you're talking about it from the position of an office uh, or a, a corporate office furnishing your space, which is the market that we initially looked at, enterprise office furniture, you're looking at weeks to months to actually procure these uh, chairs and get them into your space. You're looking at the exorbitant expense and you're looking at this really kind of onerous project management process, which a lot of people don't understand when they first are going through this as a customer. Like it's not as simple as just getting a task rabbit to assemble, you know, maybe you can do it for five chairs, but when you're talking about 50 chairs or 50 destined chairs, all of a sudden you have to think about uh, booking the freight elevator and getting your landlord to agree and getting insurance. And so the experience, the service actually wasn't that great either. And the root of all these problems is that most office furniture, contract office furniture, the high end is sold by dealers. And so they have exclusives on different markets, even like a sort of mid-sized dealer in a mid-sized city is probably doing tens of millions of dollars of revenue a year. And they've just kind of got... Um, this old school mentality. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and so that's the high end. And then on the low end, of course, you have Ikea and Amazon and Office Depot. It's cheap. It's fast. Uh, it's probably not the quality you want to keep your employees happy and working at their best. And there's certainly no service. So good luck with the task rabbit kind of managing this whole process, right? And so what, what we saw was a gap in the middle um, for a solution that combined the quality and the service of the Herman Millers of the world with the speed and the affordability of the Ikeas. Uh, and we summarized kind of the core value props that we wanted to attack as, as, as being easy, affordable, and flexible. Easy, meaning that if your business will take care of everything, 
affordable, meaning you're not paying $3,000 per head to furnish. Maybe you're paying instead $1,000 or you know, 60% less for a standing desk and a chair for your team. And then flexible, which is something that no one has done before, but just uh, hearkening to the idea that like companies these days, they're growing fast, they change fast. And if you're leaving your office in two years, what are you going to do with that furniture? And so we thought there had to be a way to make it easier to trade in your furniture and evolve your uh, your needs as your company size and and scale changes too. Yeah, and I, and I think all that makes sense. I'm curious from so you you obviously didn't have a background in like furniture manufacturing per se. No, I'm not sure if Greg did, but nope. but how do you guys go about? Yeah, so that's even even crazier. How do you go about the like prototyping stage to create your first? desk and chair and, and whatever other initial SKUs you went to market with. Cause I imagine, you know, it's not the same as just making like a widget at home and prototyping it. How do you guys think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely one of those things where if we knew how hard it would be, it would have made us think twice about the business, but you know, ultimately has, has worked out really well, but we, we had this interesting challenge where I think most D to C businesses are best served by focusing on one product and making that product experience as amazing as possible. But because we started by selling to businesses, we knew we needed to have sort of the essentials, right? Covered so that people could use us as a one-stop shop. And so we knew we had to have an ergonomic chair, a standing desk, a normal desk, a filing cabinet, at least to start. And so what we did was we went through a pretty intensive sourcing process. We spoke to sourcing agents in China um, which is uh, which was one of our sort of primary locations where we're looking for manufacturers. We narrowed down a list of potential manufacturers that we thought would be high quality. We also pulled a, a trick from Italics toolbox where we actually looked at the manufacturers, and this is hard to find, but we were able to figure it out. We tried to find the manufacturers that already worked with Herman Miller, already worked with Steelcase. Uh. Just reverse engineer their their products. Exactly. Um, or not even to reverse, just to make sure the manufacturers were high quality. And then Greg went over to China uh, with the, the first little round of pre-seed funding that we raised uh, from a few angels and friends and family and went and toured the factories with a sourcing agent and, and vetted them himself. Uh, in, in hindsight, like, I think we probably got a little lucky. Like We probably should have brought someone with more experience in manufacturing to double check what we had selected, but we ended up finding a few manufacturers with great core products. And then we worked with their in-house teams to customize those lines and make them our own. And so really trying to do as much as we can with a pretty limited budget to start. Yeah, it's fascinating. So before I go further with the business, there's a couple of, of questions like offshoots off of what you said with your background and, and kind of the formation of the company that I'm really curious on. So the first one is with kind of almost like the founder matching, right? So it's 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 fascinating to think that you know, you, you met your co-founder, someone that you didn't previously know, but, but also you weren't seeking someone that had a specific experience in an area or idea you were already pursuing, right? It was just seems like serendipity. You met him. And then based on his knowledge of that particular space, you guys went all in. And I'd love you to talk about that versus, you know, sometimes people, they rely on friends, family, or like a trusted person that's recommended, or they have an idea that they're deeply focused on and they try to find a, a, a partner who either has industry expertise or functional expertise. So just talk about that a little bit and, and how it's been so far for you. Yeah. I mean, co-founder dating is probably one of the hardest parts of building a business. And I, I would recommend that you do have a co-founder when you start a business. It's it's uh, I can't imagine life without my two co-founders. I think it would be much harder. Uh, but I, I think there are sort of three key things that I thought about when 
deciding if Greg and I were were right to work together. Um, and the first was whether our goals in starting the business were aligned. And and uh, I'll just list them out. The first is whether our goals were aligned. The second is whether our sort of values were aligned and how we thought about operating the business. And the third is whether we had complementary skill sets. So, you know, in, in terms of the first thing, goals, like to your point, neither of us really knew about office furniture. I would say that, you know, we both had a passion for real estate and the built environment, but like this was a sort of an oblique way of taking that on. So it's not like we shared this passion for this business or anything. I think we were both just really drawn to building like a business period. Uh, and and wanting to understand like how to you know lead people and 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 create a culture an organization that that could thrive and grow and so there was something intrinsic about our desire I think to to start something and it felt authentic it wasn't just about the money it was just that we really felt like this would be something that we both um, it would be the way that we could both you know kind of be the best versions of ourselves and we sussed this out over like many beers like just why are we doing this. Like, what is it for you? Is it just the money? Is it is it, is it something else? And so I think in terms of motivations, we had similar motivations. We just loved kind of this idea of doing this for ourselves. And then we also did share this love for real estate generally. Uh, in terms of values, this one like is definitely a bit tougher, but it comes down to like, you know, I, I would say you ask the question, would you work for this person if if they were hiring you and, and vice versa? And And, you know, do you think you'll learn from them? And do you think like they're nice, I think is such an underrated factor. Like there's someone that you'll be kind of constantly interacting with for the next like several years. And so, you know, again, sussed out over many beers, like just like what we valued, who we were as people. Yeah, it was like sort of, you know, shotgun dating. But I think in some ways you can be even more explicit about those things than if you're starting a company with someone you've known for a while. You can just get right into the meat and just ask, like, what do you care about when you're running a business? How do you manage people? And then complementary skill sets is kind of, I think, the obvious one where you don't want to get in each other's way. And so with with Greg and I and our third co-founder, Verity, it's interesting because we're all kind of non-technical. Like, we're not, um, none of us are sort of obviously a dev and obviously a business guy, but we all have different things we care about. Like, I'm definitely the more product-focused person on the team. Greg is definitely more into just the operating of the business uh, in general, like, you know, the financials and, 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 you know, both of us love fundraising, but we could speak to different aspects of it. And then Verity um, just really loves like, and crushes the details and she runs our operations. And so we just found that we had a really natural split of responsibilities. And I think that's key because you don't want to be second guessing each other. You just want to take on what you have to take on and get it done. Yeah, and just let it flow. There, there definitely needs to be that obvious delineation after a few, a few more beers to figure out exactly who, where, where each person will fall. You know, wh- one other question I had before I shift back to the business is around you know your time at Redfin, and I think what I'm realizing is for someone to start something in a space either directly in or, or complementary to, they usually have either specific industry expertise, like some knowledge that the majority of people don't have that can unearth an insight. Or they, as we mentioned before, they join a team that's a little bit more industry agnostic, but they have like a specific functional role. Like they've been a growth lead for three different companies in a similar space. And, and you know, when I'm talking to people who are just coming out of undergrad, I often say, look, if you have any inkling of the space you think you want to be in, try to find your initial opportunity or initial job just in that space. So you can start to develop that key industry, you know, perspective. Mm-hmm. And so for you, 
I'm curious, did you want to be in real estate pre-finding Redfin? Was that kind of serendipitous about how you found it? And then, and then when you were in it, you're like, wow, I really like this. And this is where I think I could start something. Yeah, it was totally serendipitous. Uh, I, I had no idea about like buying or selling houses in college. Uh, and like, honestly, it's just not a product that I think a lot of undergrads would relate to. But uh, what drew me to Redfin was really the culture and the, the leadership, like the CEO of Redfin, man, I deeply respect and admire, um, just like fully himself and authentic. And I just saw someone like that running a business. It was like, wow, if he can do it and, and kind of be himself and be weird, like maybe I can too. And so that was, that was why I joined Redfin. And, uh, and then um, in terms of the evolving interest in real estate, I think it's partly path dependency where the more you get into a certain market, the more kind of, the better you add are, you better you are at it and the better, you know, you can maybe tell that story to people who would fund you or work with you. But there definitely is also an intrinsic, as I got to know the space, like um, it's, it's just one of the biggest and most impactful I think areas of of business markets. It's just something that touches all of us. Whether it's your professional home in your office, your your literal home that you're buying and selling, uh, and it just felt like it it was a meaningful uh, mission uh, writ large. And so there's all kinds of ways to attack that mission. But yeah, a little bit of both. Definitely, yeah. And, and I think it's you know it's it's playing out well. So that's that's awesome. When you shifting back to the business. One thing I wanted to talk about, and I alluded to it a little bit earlier, was around the the mix, the product mix, and the way you went to market. So obviously, you started with specifically corporate office space. You've shifted, given COVID, now you've got kind of less corporate, more home office. But you know, st- starting in that in that topic area, the first question I had was, how are you sourcing and landing deals initially with kind of this corporate office space holder as a startup? Because I imagine that's one of the you know, one of the largest moats in terms of selling into has got to be the, that corporate office space for either the space or the furniture. So how do you think about that? And how do you get those early customers? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think like not to kind of be sort of trite, but it really started with just clearly defining our target market and making sure we could just speak completely clearly to their needs. And so for us, um, and this might seem like a large market, right? We, we thought about companies uh, from 25 people to about 250 people as our sweet spot. And we segmented that further into, you know, our WeWork graduates, where it's a first time CEO, maybe they just cleared 10 people. He or she wants to build a culture. She wants to kind of uh, be uh, create a space that feels unique and inspires people, but she just has no time uh, to figure out anything about an office, let alone office furniture. And she also like wants to do it pretty affordably, right? Or you have your um, con- you know, cost-conscious upgrader with another segment that we uncovered where it's just companies that want it all. They want a great office, but they're just really not trying to spend that much money. And they are venture-backed usually. They want to be responsible stewards of that capital. Um, uh, and so Herman Miller is out, but they also are just past Ikea and uh, they still don't have a lot of time. And so, you know, we, we kind of found the common threads in those segments, and uh, we also found the different threads in those segments, and we really tailored our messaging. And when it comes to the actual outreach, we had a few um, secret weapons. So one of them is that both Greg and Verity have a background in commercial real estate. Greg, obviously, at Breather, Verity, from our time in institutional real estate. And so we had a pretty good network of folks in that community, brokers, landlords, who are ultimately 
you know, in some part, the gatekeepers to this kind of decision, or at the very least, they know who's moving and who needs this stuff. And so they were able to facilitate some introductions. There's certainly direct sales that we began to do. And obviously, as a founder, it's one of your first responsibilities is to take this value prop that you've concocted and, and message it directly to people. And so we learned a lot that way, just cold emailing and, and using our networks. Uh, our VCs introduced us to tons of our clients. Uh, and uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's phase one is just testing the value prop and really confirming your product market fit. And phase two, which I would argue we're still in now with regards to our sales strategy, is taking that product market fit and then scaling it a little bit more. So for us, maybe that means once COVID's over, uh, experimenting more with direct sales, uh, hiring more salespeople, scaling this broker and landlord approach as well. Uh, But uh, definitely at the beginning, it was pretty scrappy. Definitely. So I think, you know, the, the the elephant in the room with your business is obviously COVID, right? COVID came seemingly out of nowhere and then I think was a was a huge factor that you had to deal with given people stopped working in the office. So I'd love to hear, you know, your reaction to that initially. Obviously you've shifted now, you're selling more home office furniture. How fast were you able to make that change and, and how has that gone so far? Yeah, I mean it's this pretty fascinating experience. Yeah, I I, I think uh Running a business during a pandemic is probably the best education in, in uh, just being a founder you could probably ask for. Not that I did ask for it or that we would have preferred it the other way, but it's been, it's been really great to see what our team can accomplish under, under duress. So in March, we had done our best month of revenue to date. We had done $800,000 of revenue, so close to a $10 million run rate after like about a year in business. So things were going, things were going great, um, and then literally within two weeks, and we had a bit of a warning because our factories are in China, they were shutting down. So we we're like, okay, this could get bad. We were starting to kind of batten down the hatches, and then in March, when COVID hit the U.S., is like, like brutal. Like our pipeline literally just evaporated, uh, and in April, we basically did, you know, about. 90, 90% less revenue or 10% of what we had done. Um, and so we knew we had to do something. I think unlike many of our commercial real estate peers, we had this pretty obvious pivot, right? Okay, like all these people have to be working from something, like some, you know, whether it's at home or in the office. And so let's just get them there. But yeah, rebuilding the company, the BD2C, like it took a, a, a Herculean effort across the entire organization we basically rebuilt the entire funnel, right? From acquisition, moving from sales-based acquisition to traditional growth marketing, um, paid acquisition, uh, affiliate, you know, all kinds of new channels that we had to experiment with and figure out like basically immediately. And then moving down the funnel to uh, um, uh, distribution, fulfillment, figuring out packaging, figuring out assembly guides, and that experience, um, figuring out um, all these random bugs that came up, like the initial boxes, that we got were too thin because we were shipping them via freight to our enterprise staging areas and assembling them and then delivering them. And so we had never really shipped our boxes via UPS and they were just too thin, like the chairs kept poking out. And so we had to fix that. And so it's crazy. What, what did it, yeah, like, yeah. Was, and like these people really looking forward to their chairs, they come up all scratched. And so it was a pretty stressful, I would say six weeks where we re, we redid basically everything. Um, and then it started to pay off. So in May, we went from all of a sudden being, you know, completely crushed to getting back very close to the revenue we were doing in in March, and it was all consumer. It was basically like building a brand new business from scratch. 
That's amazing. And, and I feel like, right, the benefits, if, if, if there are any, like the silver lining is you guys were still relatively small. So super nimble. You weren't overextended in terms of all this inventory, I'm assuming. And so you were able to make those, those quick pivots. What's, what's interesting is, you know, the three of you and anyone else on your team likely didn't, didn't have, or maybe had, but hadn't thought about the direct to consumer skill set, right? That, as you mentioned, how do we do growth marketing? How do we do customer acquisition, messaging, delivery? All those things are net new skills that you learned in like two months, which is a testament to you guys, right? How impressive it is, but also, you know, it shows that it's, it's, I guess, easier to build that kind of business than the initial type of, of, you know, office furniture type of business that you built. So it's, it's fascinating. I'd love to, you know, hear about what are some of the things that you, you know, assumed right in April when you were like, I got to figure this out. What were some of those things you thought? And then now six months later, were different than your expectations. You make a good point. I think it is probably easier to start a D2C business from scratch, um, which also makes it a more competitive business. And ultimately, I think a less attractive business. I don't think any of us wanted to start a D2C business for that exact reason. We wanted to start an enterprise business where we could really create a moat that extended from the furniture through the operational experience through the project management. So we definitely had a different vision in mind. But um, I think you know, some of the things that we, we have um, learned that are different, one is, it sounds kind of obvious, but when we were an enterprise-focused company, we were selling not just furniture, we were selling an experience. We were selling a service just as much as a product. And we had to really rapidly iterate on that mindset where as a consumer, all you care about is the product. Like it needs to show up completely pristine. It needs to have a great assembly guide. It needs to have a great unboxing. And all that stuff takes a while to do. And so just getting to that focus of like, okay, now we just need to focus completely on the product and making it perfect, that that whole experience, that was definitely something that we we had to figure out pretty fast um, that we just didn't quite realize. You know, we're like, okay, we'll just ship them the same chairs. No, they need to be completely differently packaged and boxed and it just needs to be better. Um, and similarly, I would say with, with uh, I mean, even the online product, the e-commerce store, uh, when we were selling to enterprises, they were educated buyers by and large. And so we could throw them a little more jargon. We could be a little bit more, um, I think, obtuse in, in the way we described ourselves and trust them to figure it out. Again, I think with D2C, you just have to be better. You have to communicate your benefits more clearly. You have to make the site really easy to navigate. And so I would say overall, because it is an easier business to kind of get started in, I think the bar is raised when it comes to executing on the core uh, value prop that you're delivering across every part of the business. Another another assumption that I, I think is a little bit more specific, we, we thought that we would just have to play the paid marketing game like everyone else. Um, and uh, we do, like we do have to, and we are scaling our paid efforts. But if, in case you see a branch ad, um, it's not an imposter, but we did have a lot of success with revenue aligned organic channels. And, uh, you know, without getting too specific, like, Affiliate has been really big for us. Um, Google has been big for us, organic Google. Uh, and so it was really nice to know that there are channels that exist, particularly when there's such a big macro demand for your product uh, that you don't have to pay an arm and a leg for and that you're really only paying for when it's actually delivering you revenue. And so revenue-aligned channels, I think, have been uh, fascinating and, and helpful for us to explore. So it's not just about you know hitting up Facebook and Instagram. And ultimately, that's 
it's just too expensive anyway, and it gets worse, right? The more competition there is. So not a game we want to play fully. It's incredible the the crash course that you that you got through that. I mean, literally the crash course. It's crazy. I'm curious, you know, you seem like not only a really thoughtful guy in this space, but you have you have a good breadth of, of startup understanding and knowledge. So I'd love to get your take on, you know, what do you think the next three to five years looks like in the in the office furniture space? Are you planning to shift the mix more back to the enterprise and this is kind of holding you over? Do you plan on, you know, after seeing the success and building the infrastructure, running them in parallel? What are your thoughts there? Oh yeah. Enterprise is going to come back and it's going to come back big. So we, we definitely foresee some, uh, like the market will shrink for sure. The enterprise office furniture market will shrink. Uh, there will be an enduring effect from COVID on the way people work, on the way offices are structured and furnished. And so I think, yeah, broadly, there will be some effect. For a company our size, like it doesn't matter. The market's still plenty big enough. It's a $50 billion market just domestically. And so even if it goes to $40 billion, um, I think that's fine for us, right? Um, but what we will see, I think, is a lot of... Uh, there are definitely enterprise-focused office furniture companies that are folding, that are consolidating. And so we are going to see a lot of... Uh, first of all, just a lot of folks drop out, which makes life easier for us. Second of all, I think we will see a renewed emphasis on the parts of our value prop that are most unique and, and we'll be able to stand out more. So specifically, um, flexibility, right? Like Branch has a first of its kind trade-in program where you buy a desk from us, you move your office, you can give it back to us, we'll give you credit towards your next purchase. In this time of uncertainty, when people don't know what furnishing their, their office is going to look like, guess what's more important than ever? Flexibility. Um, same with affordability, right? Like I think companies, many companies will still be in austerity mode, um, for some time. Like even if some parts of tech America are doing really well, a lot of companies have struggled. And so in the mid market where we are, I think our value prop of, of, we are giving you the best bang for your buck is going to resonate even more. So the bottom line is that I think enterprise is going to be fantastic for us as soon as this vaccine hits. Um, I, I can't wait for it. And then, yeah, are we going to keep running D2C? Absolutely. I think the biggest overall advantage of, of D2C is like, yeah, like we, we kind of, it's a less profitable business line for us, but it celebritizes our brand. People begin to know branch, people begin to ask for branch. And that is an enduring, as, as soft as it is, like brand is an enduring moat. And the more we can do to establish ourselves in people's minds and create that first kind of recognizable office furniture brand since the Aeron, like the better we'll be able to sell into enterprises too. And, and it's a virtuous cycle. Yeah, totally. The, the interesting thing is net net, I think your addressable market is actually going up, right? Like if, if the enterprise market drops, but now you, there's a slice of these people who are working hybrid two days from home, three days in the office that also need a space in their home, all of a sudden, right, there's there's a whole other segment that you weren't previously targeting that now you might be able to. So, you know, silver lining, of, co of course, the glass is always half full, but I, I honestly think you may have uh, more upside because of this. I, I totally agree with that. Um, we definitely think the serviceable market is, I mean, the serviceable market is certainly bigger for us. I, I think in terms of the total growth in, in this industry, there will probably will be um, an enduring effect in, in the home office demand. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's just not that many folks primed to take advantage of it, uh, at least in our segment, right? Like where we're really targeting those value conscious, but folks that still want a great office experience. And so- you know, Staples has got the low end, Herman Miller can keep the high end, but lots of room in the middle for everyone in America who, like you said, now needs a home office. So shifting to some of these other questions, 
the the first one that I like to ask almost every founder that comes on here is around hiring. And so I'm not sure if you mentioned, you know, how big the team is today, but for all of the people that you've brought on, right, of course, building a culture, building a remote culture is critical. And so I'm curious to hear from you, what have, what have proven to be or proven to have been the consistent qualities across the superstars that you found and kind of what do you look for when you hire? Yeah, we're a team of 15 right now, 15 full-time, I think. Yeah, uh, I should know that. Um, um, and, and on hiring, I think everyone has a different theory. Like I would say the tough part with hiring, right? It's not the qualities you're looking for. It's how you detect those qualities and measure them. So I would say most founders say something similar to like, oh, they have to be, they have to be versatile. They have to have grit. They have to be sharp. And I, I definitely, you know, look for those things. I definitely at a company our size, I would say being versatile, just being able to take on new challenges as they come and, and being excited for that is one of the biggest qualities. General aptitude is really important, something we look for. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I mean, just being able to do things when they get hard, grit, those are three things that I think are, are fundamental to my outlook on hiring. Uh, and then, of course, for each role, you maybe add on a layer of what experience do you have that bears directly on the work you'll be doing. And so it's more important for something like operations, say, where there's a playbook and you just need to apply it to branch versus growth, where maybe there's some kind of playbook, but it, it shifts and the landscape's shifting so much that you really just want someone who's who's got the the, the whole package. Yeah, but But in terms of how you measure those things, I think that's the toughest part. And something that we're still, or that I'm still evolving my perspective on. But I do think the best predictor so far that I've seen, um, which is, there's there's two predictors. One is, um, have they done something hard and similar before? And can they tell you exactly how they contributed to it? Not were they you know part of some group that launched this product, but like, what did you kind of get into yourself that moved the needle? And then the other the other thing I I like to just ask is um, I like to present a live challenge from from our business um, and and I mean you know this is I guess not that new but you know having them really dive into a bit of work that you are actually thinking about if you can paying them for that time not taking advantage of them but um, ultimately putting them to work on a real life problem that's how you detect it and then like making it as realistic as possible like throwing them all the things you're thinking about in terms of hurdles, barriers. If it's a simulated problem, like throwing up like simulated issues, like you're running a paid campaign. Okay, you tried this, you, you put together this ad creative, it's not good. What do you do now? And just running them through and, and really just seeing how they react. I think you're right. The, 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 how to detect is by far the hardest, the hardest uh, part of the hiring process. And I'm going to take that and, and shift the question from now on to, to ask about that. Cause I think I've gotten unique answers around different ways that people try to run the interview process to that point. I recommend the, uh, uh, the book who with the, with the a method for hiring, uh, the name of the author is escaping me, but it's, it takes some of the factors I've mentioned and it frames them in a really, uh, clear way. Uh, and so like when you're getting into like, what have you actually done? It gives you like the, the questions and the follow-up prompts to ask, to really dig into the work and just get beyond that resume line because the resume line ultimately is meaningless. Like you really have to dig deeper into the story. A question I like to ask sometimes is around, you know, things you wish you knew and, and I'll, I'll frame it to you in two ways. If, if you could teleport back to the beginning, 
full knowing that, you know, you had to go through everything you went through in order to get the insights mm. you have. Picture yourself in two places. One, coming out of school or maybe like within your first year at Redfin and then two, kind of right before you started Branch. What are some things that you would tell yourself based on kind of the knowledge you've collected over time? Oh, so many things. Oh, but before Redfin, I would probably say, um, I mean, I love my time at Redfin. I'd probably just say move faster. Uh, and I think for me, this is something that we haven't really t- touched on, but I probably, I probably like took my time. I mean, I started Branch when I was 27. It's not like I was super old, but uh, I wanted to be a novelist. And so for part of that year I was traveling, I wrote a, I wrote a novel and, you know, so there was like other factors, but all else equal, I would say like, there's nothing, there's nothing to it that you can't, that you won't have to go through to learn anyway. So just start now, like maybe leave Redfin after two years once you've gotten that core experience and just start a bit earlier. Uh, and, uh, I, the other thing I would probably say is to prioritize just meeting the people that you want to support you with this, like either directly as co-founders and and collaborators or indirectly as investors and, um, be proactive about reaching them, you know, be more public, do things like this blog and, and, and sort of develop your network that way. And I I've been kind of I've done a medium job of it. And the folks that I've met in New York tech and Seattle tech have been so instrumental. I just wish I had them for longer and, and more of them. So that's the Redfin answer. The branch answer, I think is a little bit more specific. It's just, I think go deep before you go wide. And this is a classic startup answer. But if I, if I knew like we had to pivot into a DTC business, I would say like maybe just focus on like three products. Like right now we have a line of, 30 35 products again because we do enterprise it's more important but i would say like just focus on like the dopest chair the dopest desk and like nail nail those experiences and really go deep on the whole stack of that experience and then scale that vertical by you know category by category versus our approach which was to go breath first which to be clear made a ton of sense as an enterprise focused company but it's just a little bit harder to do when you're doing D2C and each one of those experiences just has to be perfect. And so we're getting there. Easy to get spread too thin, I'm sure, at the very beginning with all those products. Exactly. I'm super curious what internally motivates different founders. So obviously you're, you're competitive and you're driven because you're starting this and you're willing to just look up at this massive hill and just start running. But when you, when you look internally, what are some of those core things that motivate you and like kind of give you purpose on a daily basis to keep grinding? One is a more abstract answer, but I'm just really fascinated by systems, by organizations, by, and, 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 and like not to be too sort of weirdly abstract, but like I'm just fascinated by cultures and how different cultures can lead some organizations to just crush it and succeed and like metastasize in other cultures to fail, right? And and so there's this like weird nerdy interest I have in just defining the best culture, the best being the culture that is best at getting you to whatever goal you set. If you're a startup, it's growth and you know eventually margin. If you're some other organization, it's something else. And so, yeah, I mean, I just think about that all the time. Like, what can we do to set a better example for the people that work at the company? How can we design incentives at the company to keep working, uh, people working their best and feeling inspired and motivated? Um, and, and so, 
yeah, like that's just an honest nerdy answer. Like it's something I'm really, I've always been interested in theoretically and now I get to apply it um, and, and actually build a culture that, that is going to make branch the best office furniture company in the world. Um, and I think we have a chance of doing that. Um, I'd say another motivator is just the people around me. And this is probably a more classic founder answer, but we've got, you know, 15 awesome people that are working on this mission and I just have so much confidence in them. And I know that, um, if, if anything doesn't work out, it'll all be, you know, it'll be me, it'll be Greg and, and the co-founders and our, our leadership, um, because the team we have, like with the skills they have and the grit they have, there's nothing they can't do. And so really about kind of doing right by them and feeling like if I, if they're working hard, I just have to work as harder, harder, uh, and, and, and honor their commitment to this business. So that's the second thing that keeps me motivated. And then I would say the third thing is, you know, hopefully every founder has some of this, but I do believe in this mission. I mean, I think that you spend so much time in the office. It has to be a place that inspires you. It has to be a place that you're happy to hang out in. It has to be a place that doesn't literally injure your back, right? I say as I sit, I'm not sitting in the most ergonomic setup right now, but I'm traveling. That's why. But uh, yeah, it's, it matters. Like what we're doing matters. I, I believe that. Yeah. And that's, it's kind of a good segue to this, this other point that I focus on, which is wellness. And for me, like my, my biggest passion and hobby is, is wellness, total wellness, trying to optimize wellness for people. And, and I truly believe that this, I, this idea of the wellness stack, right? That fitness, nutrition, sleep, all these things, to, all these things together combine to really create a compounding effect when it comes to the benefits you get from wellness. And so I'd love to hear from you just, you know, Good or bad, high or low, how do you think about wellness and how does it play a part in your daily life today? Yeah, I've been I've been trying to get so much better about this. There's definitely a time at the, you know, beginning of the branch story where I just kind of did that classic founder thing where I just worked all the time. I like ate pizza for dinner. I wasn't really working out. Um, and, uh, it like affected me. It definitely affected my productivity. It definitely affected my happiness, my endurance. And so both for like the good of the company, which is, I think the way you can bootstrap yourself into caring more about this stuff, if you frame it that way. And obviously for my own benefit, like I made a commitment this year to just be more intentional with how I'm spending that, that energy, uh, to your point, focused on wellness. And so, yeah, I have a routine now. I, 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 the four key components, if you're wondering, are getting in some exercise every day, getting into meditation every day, journaling every day, um, and, uh, just taking at least one hour every day just for me, uh, to do like read a book or whatever, cook a meal. And, uh, I make sure I do those four things every single day and it's done a lot of good. It's great. Yeah. And you've, you've seen the, you can see the benefit right away, right? When you started implementing that just within a couple of weeks. I would say within a couple of weeks to a month, it was very apparent. Founders are some of the most thoughtful people that I talk to. And you you likely read a lot, explore a lot. You're talking to other founders. And so I'm curious to get your thoughts on any other exciting spaces or trends in other arenas or industries, either as a customer or if you were to put like an angel investor hat on that you're thinking about now that kind of excite you over the next three to five years. Oh, there's so many. I mean, everything is changing. It's uh, it's such an exciting time, I think, to be fortunate, right, to have this opportunity to think about these things and hopefully build in these in these spaces. Uh, I'll give you I'll give you two. Um, one is 
I, I, the other space I was actually exploring at, at uh, this venture fund was VR and AR. And uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's so, people get laughed at for making a call about either of these spaces, but I do believe that we are entering a time when the technologies have matured. Uh, we're going to see new hardware platforms that are being released over the next couple of years that are just extremely, you know, for the first time, viable uh, modes of interacting with the world. And so I think that um, I would, you know, if I weren't doing branch, I might be thinking about what are the, what are going to be the underlying infrastructures that power these technologies? What are going to be the initial specific use cases where they begin to promulgate? And just how do you get in on the ground floor? Um, and it's, you know, it's not going to be whatever, the timing might still be off. So you have to kind of figure out some agnostic part of the value chain where you can start building it now and it'll be bought now by some customer and then it grows into that bigger opportunity. So that's one. Um, and the other space I'm just broadly fascinated by and interested in, which I think you might relate to, is just health and specifically data around health and bringing yourself all the ammunition you need to perform your best. So whatever, like everything from the way the, the Apple Watch is evolving, like whoop bands have been a big deal. Um, and, and we're getting, I think, more and more data than ever. And so what are interesting ways to maybe analyze that data, surface it in ways that are intrinsically motivating, and just get yourself motivated to be healthy and be your best, like on a fundamental level, based on what your body is literally telling you? Like, you know, and I don't know, like what this means in practice, like maybe it's a blood glucose monitor, right? That's like giving you a really clear sense of when to eat, when to fast, right? Maybe it's um, taking, you know, the, whatever the latest stuff is in the Apple Watch and turning that into some kind of program to motivate you. I use this app, FutureFit, and uh, they it's literally a personal trainer on my phone, and they track your workout intensity with an Apple Watch. And he, like, if I don't work hard enough, he's like, hey, what's going on? Um, it's amazing. It's just like, I just think there's so That's many, awesome. Yeah, you get the idea. This idea of the quantified self, I'm I'm obsessed with it as well. It's funny you say glucose monitor. I'm not sure if you've been exposed to levels, but they just announced their Series A backed by Andreessen Horowitz actually today. Oh, but I, I had them great. on the podcast yeah, a few months ago. And they're, they actually make a, well, they license the sensor today, but they'll eventually make it in-house, a continuous glucose monitor. And they have an app that does exactly what you're saying. It monitors when you eat food and how your blood glucose reacts to it. So I think you're you're spot on in that a lot of these data-driven wellness, you know, trends slash brands slash areas to explore are really popping off and it's, it's really exciting. Yeah. Um, I'll throw in one more bonus if you, if you're interested. Yeah. Let it fly. I think, I think community tech is, is something I'm seeing more and more, uh, of, and by community tech, I just mean, um, uh, apps, platforms, just ways to connect better with people that, align with you in some way. Uh, and so you could almost think of it as like meetup or Facebook events 2.0 or 3.0. Like how do you really get together with people that share your affinity for some topic, for some aim that you have? Uh, and uh, and then how can you deepen your relationship with each other? And, and how can the platform kind of facilitate that and, and take a cut of everything that results, right? The transactions that result from that relationship, if it's a hobbyist group or the jobs that result from that, if it's a career group. So I've seen a lot of activity with, you know, friends of mine who are interested in building things like this. It's broad area, but I think, you know, 
when when COVID dies down, there will just be even more interest in in facilitating true, authentic connection with people. So I think there's going to be a lot of cool stuff there. I totally agree. That's awesome. All right, last question for you. We ask this to every guest, so I'm pumped to get your take here. You know, a lot of your answers previously were probably sprinkling something, some of the things you'll say here, but it's the startup manifesto question. So if you had to write a startup manifesto with five of the most important key lessons or pitfalls to avoid when starting out, what would they be? Okay, one, don't don't start a business for money. Don't start a venture back business for money. That's a pitfall. Uh, I don't know if everyone agrees with this. I like never believed that that was true. Like a lot of my mentors were like, don't do it. Um, don't start a business for, for just money. And then, um, I've seen enough of my friends start businesses for money and they haven't kind of worked out or they've been kind of a slog and they just regret it. And I'm just really glad that I feel affinity for branch's mission. I think if I didn't, uh, it would make like the pandemic and the pivot and everything we've endured so much harder. So do it because of some intrinsic reason. You like businesses, you just like businesses, you like building things, or you like, um, there, there are reasons that exist that aren't money that don't have to be about the mission fully, but that's one. Two, I would say, um, just ensure that you're aligned with your co-founders. I think following that framework I articulated, be on the same page with your values, with your goals, with the ways your skills will complement each other. Again, just really, really grateful uh, that I feel like super aligned with my co-founders and I've seen it work out the other way and it's just not not fun. Um, three, uh, I would say this is a new this is a new lesson. This is something that I wish I'd learned or I mean I would apply going forward. Uh, think about distribution first or like a very close second. Uh, design your product around it having some clear way to uh, distribute and moreover a channel where ideally you are getting some economies of scale or your marginal cost of acquisition can decline over time. So like, don't be a typical D2C business. Like, don't do that. Um, start like whatever it is, like maybe, maybe you have taken advantage of some secular change in like how like acquisition channels work so like if you're wayfair in 2010 sure like use seo and like grow your business that way like or maybe you have something you know a business with inherent virality or whatever it is there's like blog posts about that but just have a theory on distribution don't let that be an afterthought let that be a driver of your idea and and why it feels viable to you um for um i would say is uh i think this relates to things we've talked about, but but go deep before you go broad. Again, that's more of a classic. I'm not really saying anything new there, but I would just say I, I, felt, I feel that more than ever now. Like just start with one problem and one set of, of things that you're making and then scale it out category by category. Don't go too broad. And then the last um, thing, every six months, I would like reevaluate your alignment with what you're working on and if something is speaking to you in your mind like you don't feel like you're enjoying it or you're feeling burned out like just get to the root of why that is maybe it's because you're not aligned with your co-founders maybe it's because you've drifted from the mission but just check in with yourself every six months and just keep that flame going yo it to everyone yo it to your investors yo it to your team but uh sounds woo woo but i would do it by journaling like just journal and, and just make sure you're always 
um, in tune with why you're building this business. Yeah. Yeah. Before I let you go, I mean, do you have a journaling practice that seemed to work well? Like, or do you just let it fly for 10, 15 minutes, whatever? Yeah, I, I do morning pages. Uh, I'm sure you've, you've come across like the artist way. It's, it's, uh, actually it was designed to help writers cure writer's block. Um, but, uh, three pages in the morning, first thing longhand, so you can't edit them and, uh, write about what's on your mind. And, uh, I, I, it's, it's so helpful for me. So helpful. That's awesome. Yeah. I've been doing, I'd wake up and I, I have like a sub stack that's just dedicated to this and I'll just wake up, just put a timer on for 10 minutes, type as much as I can, like just off the top of my head and then, and then just like post it and walk away. But I think the, the handwritten piece is, is critical. So I'm, I'm going to check that out. I recommend it. Cool. So b- before I let you go, and I know I've said this five times, um, I want I just want to acknowledge you for a second. I, I do this with all my guests, you know, I'm obviously hosting and driving the conversation, but also just as a fan of startups and businesses, I just want to, I just want to commend you for a couple of things that really inspired me from the conversation. I think the first is you're a really thoughtful guy. You've, you've, you can tell that you've given a lot of thought to some of the frameworks and the way you think about problems and you've come at it from a comprehensive approach. That is a really a breath of fresh air. I've interviewed dozens and dozens of founders on the show and not everyone has that kind of thoughtful, you know, methodological, methodological approach. And that's critical, right? So, so that, that's a, that's a key thing that inspired me. The other is how driven you are. I think when you don't start with, you know, a nagging problem and you end up where you are, which is, you know, incredible, you've pivoted to this separate business. Now you have two parallel streams. You guys are killing it again. That's incredible, right? And that takes a lot of perseverance and grit. And so, you know, if people don't walk away with anything other than the, those two things, I think it'll be an hour well spent. I just want to say thanks again for coming on. Um, and I, I'm going to be a huge supporter of Branch as you guys continue to grow. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. And uh, let us know if you need any ergonomic furniture. Got you, got you covered. Of course, will do. Sib Mahapatra, founder of Branch, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks. Thank you for listening to that episode with Sib Mahapatra of Branch. If you're loving the show and want to support, there's a couple quick things you could do that would really help us out. One, we're stoked to announce that our Patreon is now live. To join our exclusive MVP community, go to patreon.com slash founder podcast. Each of our tiers will be named after and inspired by a famous founder. The Jack Dorsey tier is now live, so go check it out. Two, we know you're busy and might not always have time to listen to the full episode each week, and that's okay. In addition to releasing the episode, each Tuesday, we'll send a five-minute email recap with a summary of the weekly conversation. We also plan to use our email list for fun giveaways in the future, so be sure to sign up. Go to thefounder.substack.com to sign up. Three, go into your Apple Podcasts app and subscribe to the show. After you subscribe, leave us a five-star rating and a couple-sentence positive review on why the show inspired you. These ratings and reviews are super important, and they signal to Apple that they should put our show in front of other people that might like it. Four, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at Founder Podcast. Each week, we put out teasers, audio clips, and important quotes from the episode. And lastly, check out our website as a mission control for the show. Go to thefounderpod.com. We have a page on there called Special Offers, where we link up all the discount codes from our founders' companies, as well as the books and resources they recommend. I hope you enjoyed that episode and are looking forward to the next one. Until then, I'm Callaway, and this is The Founder. Founder.